we are picking up in week five of our Gospel Pathways series. Love this graphic that we have. You may remember week one, Jake said, what you don't see is that this is a narrow road and it's all uphill, right? This, this pathway of responding to the gospel, walking in newness of life. In the first four weeks, we've really covered the simple gospel, okay? Week one, God is the prize. The best news of the good news is that we get God. Can I get an amen? amen. But the problem is week two, sin is the problem. We have not seen God as our prize, We've began to treasure other things ahead of God, and this has led to a multitude of issues, most of which is our separation from God. Okay, week three, we need a solution. The good news is Jesus is the answer. He has come not simply to pardon sin, to forgive us, but he has come to make us new. And the question is, what do we do with that? Well, week four, this last week, we talked about faith, the response. Saving faith is actually treasuring Jesus. It's all hooked on this idea of God as the prize to say Jesus is the best thing in this world that I can give my life to. And how do we get saving faith? Well, it comes by a work of God through the word of God. That's where we've been. But we're starting to turn a corner. We're getting into some of the loops. It's starting to get a little bit messy. And if you're anything like me, you want to figure out, okay, what do we do? The good news is good, but what do we do? And so we're starting this next, these next several weeks in holiness, the journey. How many of you have ever been on a journey before? Okay, a few of you. Uh, Ellie and I, almost four years to the date, went on a journey. It was journey first in the fact that it was a Howell family vacation. I was shocked that Ellie joined me on that. Uh, she decided that she would brave it, but the journey was that she and my sister-in-law, Christine, were brave or maybe foolish enough to join my brother and I on a hike, okay? We're, we're small-town Iowa boys who have never hiked a mountain before, and we decided this would be really fun. So we take off at base. I'm wearing a t-shirt and shorts because it's May, right? Nice and warm. No, you're going on a hike. You're hiking up a mountain. So before we get too far up, we meet... Snow, and I'm not talking a little bit, snow up to my knees, and I'm just treading through it in Nike running shoes. And then we get off the trail, I don't know how, no one is around, and there's a stream. And what do we do? Well, there's a tree that had fallen over it, so we just straddle the tree and we cross the stream. Our goal is just to get to the top. We don't care how we get there. Well, the good news is we made it. Took us longer than it should have, but several hours later, we are at the top of the mountain and I am looking at what is known as Mohawk Lake. This lake that is just surrounded by mountains. It's the most beautiful thing that 30 year old Jordan has set eyes upon, okay? Amazing. But it was a journey because Miriam Webster says a journey usually means traveling a long distance and often in dangerous or difficult circumstances. That was a journey. But getting to the top, I look at it, and I'm like, yeah, that journey was worth it. It was work. It was hard. But it was worth it. And Veritas, this journey that we are on as a family of God, as a people of God, is the journey of holiness. And it starts at the base camp of justification. 
This idea that Jesus has come, he has lived, he has died, he has rose again, so that responding in faith, you are now declared righteous. And one day, whether Jesus returns or calls you home, you will see him face to face and you will experience glorification. It's like the peak of the mountain. You are not just declared righteous, you are righteous. Sin no longer exists within you. I long for that day. But in between base and peak, we're left with a journey in between. This is what we as Christians call sanctification. This process of looking more and more like Jesus. And you better believe it's a journey. Can I get a witness? It's long. It's hard. But if you're going to start talking about the journey of holiness, maybe we should actually talk about what is holiness. Well, in order to understand holiness, you need a Bible. You need to understand who God is. At his very essence is holiness. In fact, in Isaiah 6, we read Isaiah's words written down that say, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now this is the only time in all of the Bible Holy, holy, holy is the only attribute of God that is raised to the third degree. So many attributes of God that we talk about frequently. He's loving. The Bible does not say God is love, love, love. We talk about God being merciful. We never see in scripture God is mercy, mercy, mercy. But we do see on multiple occasions, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. R.C. Sproul, theologian, wrote a book called The Holiness of God. And what he says about God is that oftentimes we use the simple definition of set apart for holiness. But that doesn't just work for God because he's not simply set apart. He is transcendent, meaning exceeding usual limits. Sproul writes this, when we speak of the transcendence of God, we are talking about that sense in which God is above and beyond us. Transcendence describes his supreme and absolute greatness. Transcendence describes God in his consuming majesty. The word holy calls attention to all that God is. Holy captures his deity. And in fact, everything that flows from God is holy in nature. He has a holy love, a holy justice, and a holy mercy. And so as we think about our series, holiness is what makes God the prize. It's what sets him apart so far above and beyond us that when we enter into his presence like Isaiah, we are undone to see the majesty and perfection of our God. But holiness was not meant to just stop with God because in Leviticus 11, he tells his people Israel this, Be holy as I am holy. Be set apart as I am set apart. 
Now, you and me, we can't be transcendent because we are not God. But what God has said is you are meant to be a people for God's possession. You belong to a holy God. Therefore, be holy. Peter doubles down on this in 1 Peter 1. As the one who has called you is holy, be holy. For he has said, you shall be holy for I am holy. John Piper defines human holiness as this, to know the true greatness, beauty, and worth of God, to have desires that conform to that knowledge, resulting in attitudes, words, and actions that follow from those desires. You see Piper take this head, heart, hands language to talk about human holiness, to know the greatness, beauty, and worth of God to have desires that conform to that knowledge and it results in attitudes, words, and actions. So holiness is a journey and holiness is a command. Maybe the question we need to ask is, how's that journey going? How obedient are we to this command to be holy as God is holy? Have you been seeing spiritual growth in your life? You've been experiencing victory over sin? For some in this room, I hope the answer is yes, a resounding yes, and we can praise God for that. But my fear is for many in this room, when I even bring up the word sin, you start to cringe a little bit. As we talk about the path, the journey of holiness, you can't help but just feel frustrated. Right, just this last March, celebrating 10 years of following Jesus. And the question I had to begin asking myself is, am I a 10-year-old Christian? Or have I been a one-year-old Christian for 10 years? <laughs> and I asked the same question to you. Are you seeing maturity in your faith walk? Are you growing in holiness? And as we talk over the next several weeks about what it means to be on the journey of holiness, we need to start talking about fighting sin. So the question is, how do you fight sin? That's where we're going today. We're in Romans 6. You can flip in your Bibles there with me. Romans 6. And here we're getting this letter from Paul written to the church in Rome in pretty unique circumstances. AD 49, the emperor Claudius had expelled Jews out of Rome Raising a ruckus, so he just said, it's easier if you guys go away. Well, five years later, they return to Rome to a church that is overrun by Gentile believers. And they're now stuck in this question of how do we all get along and function and follow God? Because they're asking the question, well, do we place an emphasis on the law or do we place an emphasis on grace? And Paul spends the first several chapters of Romans laying out the gospel, what we have spent the first four weeks of our series talking about. God is the prize. Sin is the problem. Jesus is the answer. Faith is the appropriate response. But the original audience is now asking this question. Okay, do I take my holiness seriously by following the law or do I take grace seriously and be left with no concern for obedience? That's kind of what's happening. And Paul actually knows that they're wrestling with that. And we see that in verse one, as he begins to write, it says, what shall we say then? 
are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because we have grace, can we just do whatever we want? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is saying to them, and he's saying to us, don't you understand that it's not holiness in one camp and grace in another, but these two things are connected. Grace and holiness are connected. Do you not see that there is a connection between the sin-bearing work of Christ and the sin-killing work of the Christian? Do you not see that there is a connection between the gift of grace and the command to holiness? In verse 4, he says, so that we might walk in newness of life. So how do we begin to walk in newness of life? Let's keep reading. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. You can say amen to that. That's good news. So, Paul says, so that we might walk in newness of life. And then you read verses 5 through 10, and you're maybe asking the question, what do I do? (laughs) If you're anything like me, it's just like, just tell me what to do. Well, he hasn't told us anything to do yet. He starts with simple gospel truths, speaking identity over you and over me. Three simple truths of grace. The first is that grace makes you new. Grace makes you new. He doesn't just talk about walking in newness of life. In verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him. He's saying, If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're understanding that he did not just live, die, and rise again to make you a better, cleaned up version of your old self. He died to make you new. 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is a new creation, if anyone is in Christ, I've spoiled it, he is a new creation. And I don't claim to know your story, but if you're anything like me, you have to speak into your past this gospel of grace. I came to know Jesus as a 21-year-old at Iowa State University. And you better believe I did a lot of regrettable things. I did things that were certainly first and foremost against God that I now despise. But I also did things that today I still bear the consequence of. Things that Jesus certainly broke the curse of, but I'm still dealing with the consequences of my sin. And when those bubble up, I can't help but think, 
that that's still me. I still bear the guilt and shame of my old sin, but the problem is I've been lying to myself. Because what God tells me in his word is, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old Jordan is dead and gone. He died in 2013. The new Jordan is here. And this became abundantly clear and real to me this last October as Ellie and I got to adopt our two boys. And let me just say, adoption is not a human idea. Adoption is God's idea. If you need further evidence of that, look at Ephesians 1 or Galatians 4. They'll help you out. That we have been adopted into the family of God. And Ellie and I, by the grace of God, just got to see that lived out. We walk into a courthouse and we are declared legal parents of these two baby boys that we love so dearly. But I think what wrecked me the most is this idea that leaving the courthouse, we're not just now parents of these same two kids. Our kids are given a new name. They're given a new birth certificate. They're given a new social security number. And Ellie and I are driving away, boys in the back, and she's like, it's almost like the old them never existed. And in true preacher fashion, I said, that'll preach. And she said, stop, we're not working today. But this reality just lived out in front of my eyes. Oh my goodness, these kids are new. They have a new birth certificate, a new social. The old them is dead and gone. It didn't exist, essentially. And that's what grace is offering you as a Christian to say, you are new. And if that's not good news enough, we get the second truth that grace sets you free so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Do you know that we're all slaves to something? If you keep reading in Romans 6, you're going to see that. We are all slaves to what we obey. And before coming to Christ, I had people all the time telling me, do not follow the rigid rules of religion. Be free. And in 2 Peter 2, false teachers are doing the same thing. They're promising freedom, but Scripture says what? They were slaves themselves to corruption. Sin is enslaving. It takes this holy desire that longs to worship and what it does is it takes our desire to worship and it puts it upon an unholy being. We start to call an unholy thing holy as we begin to worship it and here's what happens. We are left dissatisfied and wanting more. Think about it. The approval of people. The approval of man. How approved do you need to be the love of money. How much money do you need to make? How much is enough? The pursuit of pleasure. How much do you need to drink? How much do you need to consume? Well, the problem is, it keeps growing. But the good news is, our text says, grace has set us free. Grace has set us free from the bondage of sin meaning that grace does not simply grant you forgiveness, it gives you freedom. It's not just reactive, it's proactive. And you might say, how does grace do this? Well, 
The third truth is that grace satisfies your soul. Grace satisfies your soul. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That's us. We get to join in. We get to love and savor and follow Jesus who has a resounding victory over sin, Satan, and death. Once and for all, he'll never die again. So as we actually fix our eyes on the victory of Christ's resurrection and the reality of life with him forever, sin and temptation start to lose their power. We actually start to relate to sin differently. Have you ever started to think of sin or obedience as a list of do this or don't do that, or I should and I shouldn't? I know I have. I shouldn't get drunk. I shouldn't be greedy. I shouldn't lie. The problem is there's no freedom offered there. What the freedom we experience is through the satisfaction of Jesus, which changes our perspective. And it doesn't say I shouldn't. It says I no longer need to. I no longer need to pick up the bottle because my pleasure comes from Jesus. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. I no longer need to make more money because my security comes from Jesus. He is my rock and my refuge. He is where I run to in times of need. I no longer need to lie because my approval does not come from other people. It comes from God who looks at me and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I belong to God. I belong to his family. So I don't have to lie anymore. All of these great truths. And I think the problem is many of us would say yes and amen. I already know those, Jordan. Tell me something new. (laughs) Give me something that I can do. What do we do with this? We got to keep reading verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. It's wild. This book of Romans, one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. And if you've been around the church or acquainted with the Bible for for long, it's one of your favorites too. It's so rich. It's so gospel-centered and gospel-focused. There's dense theology. There's so much to love in the book of Romans. But the reality is we are in chapter six of this book and it's frustrating to a type A personality. There hasn't been a command yet. Paul has waited six chapters to tell you what to do. And do you know what the first command is? The first imperative penned in the letter to the Romans? It's found in verse 11. 
So you also must consider. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to ask you to circle that word in your Bible. Consider. In light of all of these truths of who God is, what he has done, who he says you are, the first thing you must do is consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a present verb. So you could say, keep considering, continue to consider. Tell yourself over and over and over again, this is what's true of you. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So as I think about why we've been losing to sin, it's not because sin has power over us. We just read that in this text. Sin has no dominion over you. Well, then how is sin winning? Because we have been lying to ourselves. In our heads, what we've been considering, we have been lying about who God is. He is angry. He is distant. He doesn't know what he's doing. If he knew better, (laughs) maybe he's holding out on me. If he knew how much I felt this, he would let me blank. Lies, lies about ourselves, lies that think too highly of ourselves that say, I am great. I know better than God. If he would just get on board with my plans, things would go great. Or even thoughts that think too lowly of yourself. I am too far gone. God's grace has nothing to offer me. If he knew how much of a sinner I was, he wouldn't even come close. Lying to yourself, lying about life. Not here for a long time, just here for a good time. (laughs) Let's live it up, you know? Whatever makes me feel good. I'm gonna follow my feelings because that's where happiness is. Lies. That if you were to start to speak them out loud, you would be able to pretty quickly rebuke them, but you've been telling them yourself in your head. Paul David Tripp A pastor and author says this, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Say that again. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. How's your thought life, Veritas Church? What have you been thinking of? What have you been telling yourself as you leave church and someone cuts you off or disregards the four-way stop. It's my pet peeve, by the way, four-way stops. When you go to work on Monday and you have to deal with difficult coworkers, difficult customers, or you come home and you deal with difficult family members or friends or roommates, and if you're like, I don't know a difficult person, you are the difficult person, Okay. Everyone else is here trying to figure out how they're going to deal with you. No, what are you thinking about? How often are you actually considering who Jesus is? What he has done for you? How often are you considering your identity, your union with Christ? That just like he died, you died to sin. Just like he rose from the dead, you are now alive to God in Christ Jesus. How often do you think about that? 
I think the problem with grace in our day and age is that we only view grace as a reactive measure. And hear me when I say, grace is wonderful medicine to a wound. On the tail end of sin, to be able to say, wow, God's grace is amazing. His grace is sufficient in my weakness. His love is perfect. I see it. Sometimes grace is no more evident than on the tail end of sin. And we get in the presence of a holy God and he still says, you're mine. I love you. Come to me. Let me clean you up. But grace was never meant to stop as a reactive measure. You understand that grace actually is meant to be a primary weapon in waging war on your sin. Verse 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you. Sin doesn't master you anymore. Why? Since you are not under law, but are under grace. We're meant to apply grace on the front end, not just on the back end. Meaning grace does not simply pardon your sin. Grace empowers you to kill sin. Or you could say, grace does not only cancel the debt of your sin, grace empowers you to conquer the enemy of sin. Paul is saying to you and me, you're not a victim anymore. This isn't just something that's done to you. Look who Christ is. Look at what he's done. Look at who he says you are. You are now victorious You who once were dead in sin are now dead to sin. Savor the gospel. You can taste and see that God is good. He can become your passion. He is your prize. And yes, from there, you better believe he is worth serving with your life. This head, heart, hands movement in fighting sin starts up here consider. So that we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about holiness, the journey, and what it means to fight sin and to see God as our prize. Week one, we need to start with this. Effectively fight your sin by intentionally focusing on the gospel. Effectively fight your sin by intentionally focusing on the gospel. This requires you to consider, to be very intentional, not just on a Sunday when you're at church, but on a Monday morning, on a Tuesday work call, on a Wednesday night bath time with the kids, to consider your identity, your union with Christ. Focus on the gospel. So you might say, what does this look like, Jordan? You've told me what to do. What does it look like? Well, I've got plenty of sins I could air out for you, but I'm going to choose one. Save us some time. We're going to talk about anger. Okay? Uh, You might give me a little bit of grace. I'm a parent of a two and a half year old and a one and a half year old. All right? Anybody think anger might be there? Yeah. I'm not saying that to make myself feel better. I'm just here to say it's real. All right? I have two boys that love to fight, break things, make a mess, and most certainly get their way. And here's what I want them to do. Get my way. 
That's what I want them to do. And stop doing everything that they're doing. And in one sense, you could say, oh, anger really is not bad. And I can be with you there, okay? There is such thing as a righteous anger. And here's what a righteous anger is rooted in. A love for God and a love for my children that longs for them to be obedient for their own flourishing, okay? That is a righteous anger to say, oh, man, God, I so love you and I so love these boys that I want them to understand healthy authority and submission so that someday they can go off to college and this is for their good. And yeah, I think at one point it started there. (laughs) Do you think it stayed there? I wouldn't be talking about it if we're not, okay? Righteous anger became unrighteous anger the second it became about me. The second it was not about God and my love for these kids and their flourishing, because I can't help but think of the week we talked about sin, the problem, and Jake talked through five whys. My oldest takes a scoop of bath water and just throws it over his shoulder. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Water all over the bathroom floor. And it's just water, right? No big deal. But the problem was, you guys, as I did the five whys, I got to the bottom of it, and I love control. The idol of control existed there that I wanted my evening routine to go so much according to my plan that my anger actually won over obedience to Jesus. What a shame. And so, yes, grace met me on the back end of that experience and showed me how amazing God is, how kind and generous he is, as I am his child who has been rebellious against him and done a heck of a lot more than throwing water over my shoulder. But now the thing is, I'm still parenting these kids. And I'm going to leave here today, and guess what? Tonight's bath time. So I'm going to need to enter into a very similar situation. And the question is, how do I not get angry again? Well, maybe I look at the the cross of Jesus. (laughs) Good place to start. If you're looking for starters, the cross of Jesus, where unrighteous anger and righteous anger perfectly intersect, that God would take the unrighteous anger of man to put Jesus the Messiah on a cross, but that at the same time, God the Father in his righteous anger would punish sin once and for all for unrighteous people like them and like you and me. That God in his righteous anger 2,000 years ago knew that there would be an angry dad at his kid that threw water over his shoulder. (laughs) And now, as I go home to parent my kids, I can say, wow, I don't have to be angry anymore. Not, don't be angry, don't be angry, don't be angry. No, I don't need to be angry anymore. Why? Because Christ is in control. He's on the throne. And guess what? He is for me, not against me. And he has been compassionate towards me and loving towards me. Therefore, guess what? I get to celebrate not being in control because we don't want God's job anyways, do we? I can celebrate not being in control and I can actually enjoy being compassionate towards my kids and gentle with my children. Here's why. Because it shows me more of who Jesus is. And it shows my kids more of who Jesus is. So the win 
is again, back to God as the prize. That I would get to see his true greatness, beauty, and worth. That my desires would conform to that knowledge. And the end result, attitudes, words, and actions that flow from a changed heart. Would that be true of us, Veritas? Let's pray to that end. Father God, we just thank you. Thank you that you are a holy God. We know none other like you. So far above our ways are your ways and your thoughts above our thoughts. But yet, God, you love us enough to come down to us, to not stand at a distance and wait for us to work our way to you, but to send Jesus down to put on flesh, to live and die and rise again so that we might be reconciled unto you, be declared a new creation and a people for your possession, a people that you have called to holiness, a people to be set apart. But God, we need your help. We need your help to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We need the power of your spirit to actually take hold of this victory that you have already purchased and accomplished for us. And so today, this week, weeks, months, and years moving forward, would you keep the gospel fresh on our minds that we might effectively wage war on sin to enjoy you. We pray in your name. Amen.